Turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians as we're going to get going this morning. We're going to start a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's going to take uh, a year to get through the book. I mean, we are going to take our time, and we're going to go through this book, and God is going to do some work in this church. The series is called Church Under Construction. One of the ways God refers to His church is like His building, and His building ain't going to get finished this side of heaven, okay? Uh, if you want to build a strong building, you have to select solid, sturdy building materials, Okay? You wouldn't be too confident if you were building your own house and you showed up after three months worth of work and you realized that they were only using Lego blocks to put your house up. That wouldn't inspire confidence in you, right? I read of a church recently called Abston Community Church, and I guarantee you that church isn't going to last because it's just not built out of strong, sturdy materials. In fact, this church is built entirely of Legos. Check this out. We've got pictures. This is Abston Community Church. Abstin Community Church is big. Look at the congregation. I mean, hey, they, they got that place packed. They've got a pipe organ. They've got a pastor. They've got a baptistry. And, you know, they've got everything that you would kind of need to make a church a church. But like one mad cat fight, and that thing is all going down, right? <laughs> it's just not built strong because it's built out of Legos. Well, God says His church is like a building. And the building has to be put up with solid building materials. And on top of that, it has to be laid on top of a solid, firm foundation. So check out in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, where God introduces His church and describes it as like a building. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. It says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Okay, so check this out. The church is described as a building, okay? And we are supposed to take care how we build. And we're supposed to be very careful to build on the solid foundation of Christ Jesus. We're also supposed to select our building materials biblically. So therefore, 1 Corinthians is basically like a blueprint of how God wants His church built strong. That's basically what it is. It's God talking to one church about how He wants to build that church strong. And we have to follow the blueprint exactly if we want our work to last. It will be tested. And when is it tested? In the last day when Christ comes back. What we do here will be tested when Christ comes back. The walls will be kicked. How strongly did you build this? And really, it's the people who are the building. Do you understand? He's trying to get us to see we have to build strong disciples who will last. Their faith will endure to the end. And then they will pass into eternity greatly blessed. So turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to go through the greeting and the intro to the letter this morning. And you know what's remarkable is at the beginning of this letter, Paul instantly 
turns his audience's attention to Jesus. This first message is about Christ as being the foundation uh, of the church. And it's amazing how many things fall into place in your life and in our church when we get Jesus right. And it's amazing how many things fall apart in your life and in our church when we get Jesus wrong. So it's only appropriate that he first turns their attention to Jesus. And, you know, he's talking about what makes Jesus the only sure, solid foundation. So what you'll receive this morning is three foundational truths about Jesus and his church. Let's pray, and then we'll start this new series together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us this book, 1 Corinthians, and we trust that you are going to build us. You're going to build us stronger. You're going to go to work. You're going to add additions on. You're going to put new stories up. Father, we understand that none of us is finished. You're not done with any person in this room. And certainly you've just begun to construct Harvest Palace to be a strong, tall lighthouse that many come to and receive salvation. So Lord, go to work this morning. We open our ears to you and our hearts to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so check out 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 1, here we go. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Okay, a little background on the book here. It's always good to know like where this letter was going and why it got there and everything. Uh, the author is Paul, the apostle. You know, we just went through Acts and we heard Paul traveled all over the world. Well, on his second missionary journey, he came to this city called Corinth. It was the biggest city he had reached to date, and he was overwhelmed. In fact, he says at one point he arrived with great fear and trembling because this was like a mega city, 250,000 people perhaps. It was huge. Not only that, it was known for trade, but it was famous for immorality. I mean, there was this temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, who looked, this temple looked down over the city, and one ancient historian said at one point there were a thousand hired temple prostitutes who worked at this temple, and by night they would come down into the city and they would uh, raise some money for the temple. That's the city of Corinth, and this is where this letter was written. Let's just say, to find a modern parallel, what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth, okay? So imagine if you planted a church in Vegas and, all right, it's going to be one messed up church, right? And now you've got a letter. You've got to write a letter to them because there's all sorts of messed up stuff happening. And that's what 1 Corinthians really is. It's a letter from the church planter to this church and they were, they were messed up, okay? Uh, they were all messed up. It's an amazing city. It was, uh, you know, multicultural center. They had a theater that seated 18,000 people, a concert hall, it was probably the wealthiest city in Greece. Um, and uh, he mentions this other guy, Sosthenes. He says, Paul and our brother, Sosthenes. Now, in Acts, you remember in Corinth when Paul got there, the Jewish people didn't know how to take to this new gospel thing, right? So like, all right, they heard, they heard, they heard. Then they kicked Paul out of the, the synagogue. So he went next door. Uh, and the synagogue ruler, Crispus, got saved. So the leader of the synagogue left the synagogue and went next door with Paul. And, uh, and so then they got really mad in the city because people were leaving the synagogue and going to Paul. So they appointed this new guy to be the synagogue leader. And guess what his name was? Sosthenes. In fact, when they dragged Paul to court in Corinth, guess who was the prosecuting attorney? 
Sosthenes, he was right there. He would like to. And when the case got thrown out, they got so mad at Sosthenes for what was going on, they beat him in front of the courthouse. Okay? And then guess what happened? Sosthenes got saved. <laughs> so now, here, Paul and our brother, Sosthenes, are writing this letter back to Corinth. And let, I mean, the, the pulpit search committee at this poor synagogue was busy. Okay? They just lost two synagogue rulers in a row uh, to the Lord. And so it's amazing that this shows not only Paul, who is persecuting the church, but Sosthenes, who is persecuting Paul, are both now writing this letter to this new baby church. And what a testimony of God's grace and power to save even the vilest of sinners. Paul probably arrived at Corinth at A.D. 50. He probably left in the latter portion of A.D. 51. And here maybe two, three, four years later, this church hasn't been, uh, it's a new church just like us. Paul's writing this letter to them. Okay, so they don't have it all figured out. They're new just like us and they're growing. God's at work. Paul loved this church. And Paul hated this church. <laughs> In fact, he wrote four letters to them. Okay, the first letter we don't have, but he talks about it in here. So this is actually like 2 Corinthians. Okay? Then he wrote a third letter, and he calls it the painful letter. I mean, this letter was like big, scrawled, angry letters because things got worse after he wrote this first. We don't even have that letter, and it might be good that we don't because who knows what Paul wrote to them but let's just say it wasn't pretty, what was going on in this church. Then, the fourth letter, which we actually have in our Bible, it's called 2 Corinthians, oh, he talks about how, ah, now that you have made these things right, I can write you in love. Another gracious letter. So four letters, we have the second and the fourth, and that just shows how invested Paul was in this church. Not only Paul, but how God wanted this church to know what he expects and to grow up strong. And so, here in chapter 1, verse 1, we meet the author and his accompanier, uh, Sosthenes. And then he says this, to the church of God that is in Corinth. That alone is like, where? Where? You know, Harvest is a church planting church, right? What, what would, like if we said we were going to plant a church in, what would be a shocking destination? Just throw one out there. Timbuktu, what? Timbuktu. How about Iraq? Hey, Harvest Iraq launches next week. What? What? Really? Uh, <laughs> okay, this is like the effect here. The church of God in Corinth. Whoa, how did that happen? And then it says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Jot this down. Here's the first foundational truth about Christ and His church. Through Christ... We become God's holy people. Through Christ, we become God's holy people. And this is past tense. Let's dig into what it means here by looking at three things that are true of every believer because of Christ. It says here first, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So write this down. We have been sanctified in Christ. Sanctified. What does sanctified mean? I love this word. I love this word. You ready? Sanctified means made holy. Made holy. The word holy means blameless, set apart from sin, and devoted to God. God himself, 
when he's described by angels in heaven who do nothing all day long but worship him, what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What does that mean? It means, it means he's morally perfect. It means God and sin don't touch, ever. He is completely and wholly and fully set apart from sin. And guess what Christ made you? Holy. Uh, Lauren and I took the kids to the zoo recently, and uh, I got some good footage of the polar bear. All right, check this out. This is some polar bear footage of us at the zoo, and my kids are right up against the glass. Okay, so did you hear all the laughter? Did you hear, whoa, look at that, he's standing up, that's so cute. Why? Because there's about a foot thick glass window between them and the polar bear, right? What would happen if the polar bear came to the glass and knocked it over? What would happen? Ah! Grab the children and start running as fast as they can. No more fun and laughter, right? Why? Why? Because it's not safe for humans to be in the habitat of a polar bear and a hungry one at that. Okay, so listen, holiness, holiness is separation. It's God is set apart from sin forever. Why? Because sin cannot dwell in God's presence. Okay, therefore, you being sinful from birth, all of us being sinful from birth are walled off from God. Why? Because it's not safe for a sinful human to be in the presence of a holy God. You can't survive that encounter. So what does he have to do? Well, he has to find a way to get you into his realm, to make you acceptable in his sight, right? How does he do that? In Christ. In Christ, you are sanctified. You are set apart. Uh, You are brought into the realm of the holy God because you have been washed from your sin. Your sins can't touch you anymore in God's presence. This is a positional truth that can never be changed. In Christ, we have been sanctified of all of our sins. We're made holy. We're cleansed of defilement, and God now treats us as morally perfect. We're therefore welcome in his presence because the barrier has been removed. And it only happens in Christ. Well, there's another truth. It's true of all believers. Uh, Write this down. In Christ, we have become saints in God's sight. Uh, The word saint means basically like set-apart ones or or holy ones. Uh, We're basically called to be holy. Now, saint, when you think saint, don't mean that you have to like somehow pull off three miracles here you know, to try and get your way into heaven, okay? (laughs) You might be surprised to know that the Bible never gives you this, like, tier system of how many people have gotten to a greater, more spiritual plane in this life by somehow doing remarkable deeds. There's no such thing in the Bible as a saint in the sense that, like, they're up here, you're down here. How many of you are growing up had to write one of those saint reports to, to get your religious training done? I wrote one, Saint Aloysius. That's my saint name. I picked him because he had the shortest paragraph in the whole book, and I got the research done in no time. Uh-huh. And what was the point of that? The point of that was because at the end of your report, you're supposed to be like, whoa, he's so holy. If only I could be as holy as him. Wow. But that's not what the Bible, when it says saints, it's past tense. You have become saints in God's sight. You've become a holy one to God. The saints is the church. And the thought of a human being being more holy than you is not a biblical thought. It doesn't exist in the Bible. There's no classes of believers. The point here is we don't revere humans, we revere Christ. 
Okay, get this. We don't become holy by our behavior. We become holy by our Lord. And then our behavior becomes holy with His help. You get that? The first thing that happens to you when you put your faith in Christ is you become holy in God's sight. Then He goes to work changing your actions and your choices. We have been sanctified in Christ. We've become saints in God's sight. Jot this down. Because we called upon Jesus as Savior. It's ironic that only sinners become saints. We were guilty. We were condemned. We were hellbound, And we understood that. And so we needed a Savior. And Christ became that Savior. You see? You didn't work your, your tail off to try and get yourself right with God. You threw up your hands and said, I can't do it. And that's why you got a Savior in Christ. You called upon Jesus as Savior, it says here, and it says here, together with everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So if you have not called upon Christ as Lord, you may go to church, but you're not the church. You see, you're the church if you have called upon Jesus as Savior. And then, with Christ as the foundation of your life and your eternity, you can know that you have been made holy. You're acceptable in His sight. Through Christ, we become God's holy people. I can't tell you how encouraging this is to me on a bad day. Have you had bad days? Have you had bad days as a mom? Bad days as a husband? Bad days as a worker? Bad days as a boss? Bad days as a bride? I mean, you just blew it. I mean, at the end of that night, you're just like, I'm, I'm not even a Christian today. I'm, it, it just, I, you know what? We get comfort and encouragement from these truths, because do you understand that you are loved by God, saved by God, made holy and sanctified and welcome in his presence, and it's because of what Christ already did for you in the past. You can't blow it. You can't change it. Nothing can change the fact that you have been made holy in God's sight. That's what makes Christ the foundation of your life, of this church, for all of eternity. Well, there's a second thing we learn, a second foundational truth about Christ. Through Christ, not only do we become God's holy people, but jot this down, through Christ, we can know and serve a holy God. We can know and serve a holy God. So check out verse 3. This point kind of builds a little bit. In verse 3 it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God as always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. So through Christ, we can know and serve a holy God. And the foundation of this is what God did for you in Christ. So it says the grace of God was given through Jesus. Now get this, was given, was given is past tense. It's the verb tense describes it as an action completed at a particular definite point of time. So in other words, there was a moment of conversion in your past when the grace of God was given you in Christ. And then he begins to list all the benefits that come from that moment uh, when you put your faith in Christ. Now some churches get this wrong. Some churches don't understand who gives the grace, how much we get, and how much more we need to get throughout our lifetime. Uh, some churches unbiblically and wrongly teach that you get the grace from humans, uh, clergy. You have to go to 
the holy ones in the church to get the grace. And you have to go weekly because you could lose it. Uh, you kind of run out. You leak. You know, it's like a gas tank. You, you need to come back and get more grace. And uh, heaven forbid you should mess up so much so that, that you refused the grace. Because then where would you be if you can't go and get the grace anymore? Okay, listen, this is unbiblical. The grace, according to the Bible, is found in Jesus Christ alone. And you get 100% of the grace God has for you at the moment of your conversion. You can't get any more. You cannot get a fraction of a percent more of grace from God than what you got the moment that you were saved. Do you understand that? There's nowhere you can go. There's no one you could meet. There's nothing you can do to get you to lose or gain more grace than you got through Jesus Christ, your Savior. In fact, grace means unearned favor. Uh, grace, by definition, is something you don't deserve. It's something you can't work for. It's something you can't merit. Uh, it's not like a, a puppy treat, like you do a few tricks and God throws you a treat. You know, that, that's not the way grace works. When you put your faith in Christ, it says, in Christ, you are given the grace of God. There are certain things that you can only get in certain places. For example, there are certain things you can only get on eBay. eBay has so many things, and unless you go there, you're not going to find these things. Take, for example, thing number one. This is a cane-toed coin purse. Where else are you going to find a cane-toed coin purse? Ladies, be the first one, and you can start the trend at Harvest Palace to have a cane-toed coin purse. Bidding starts at $8. Check out this next one. How about perhaps the most bizarre apple ever? $2.5 million. You can make the first bid. Uh, it's an apple, and the shape warrants a price tag that is astronomical. Only on eBay will you find a $2.5 million apple. Or this, is a, this next one is cool, too. I like this. Cupcake-flavored vanilla toothpaste. Now, parents, what's not to like about this? It tastes like cupcakes, but it's really toothpaste. Talk about psyching your kids out. <laughs> Here you go. Brush your teeth. Oh, it's like cupcakes in my mouth. Ha! It's fluoride. Gotcha. Only on eBay. Okay, now here's the point, though. Ready? The only place you could go to get grace from God is Christ. It's the only place. There's nowhere else you can go. And once you're there, there's nothing more you can get than what he gives you. A proper understanding of grace biblically means we don't work hard to earn it. We don't fear we can lose it. We don't try and add anything to it because we've been given the grace of God in Christ. And then it says here that you've been, I like this word, enriched in every way. Enriched. The word means enriched. It means to make rich. It means to bestow richly uh, or abundantly um, it's really remarkable. You've been made rich spiritually. Uh, what would happen if somebody came up to you and wrote you a check for $2 billion? Uh, what would happen if you were given a winning lottery ticket? Would your behavior change at all next week? Yeah. Yeah. Everything would change, right? Well, spiritually, that's what happened. You were enriched spiritually in every way, past tense, when you were given the grace of God. And, and this is what's cool about it. You didn't do anything God gave you the riches of Christ and deposited them into your spiritual bank account. That's what it means to make you righteous in God's sight. It's called imputed righteousness. He gave you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So like you're accessing his account. 
this past week, uh, something crazy happened. Somebody stole my identity. Has anybody ever had, like, somebody got your credit card number and started spending things on it? Has that happened to you before? Yeah. It's kind of weird. Uh, you know, I just go out for lunch, and the card's declined, which is kind of embarrassing. So I called the bank, and I'm like, hey, what's, what's going on with my card? And they said, oh, you've been flagged uh, as possibly uh, having your identity stolen. And I said, okay, well, how do we figure out if my identity's been stolen? And they said, well, let's talk through a few purchases. So uh, they start, and they say, uh, did you spend $75 on software from a company in Cyprus? And I was like, uh, no. And they're like, did you go to this uh, bank in Great Britain and open an account? I was like, uh, no, that wasn't me either. And then they're like, did you start a Netflix account two days ago? And I'm like, no. And then I'm thinking like, wow, way to be ambitious, Steve. <laughs> you steal a credit card number, and then you get a Netflix account for six bucks a month. I mean, wow, wow. Like your screen name in the chat rooms must be like the Razor or something because you're so bad. And then they, and they kept going back, and then they were like, did you spend $15 at Portillo's? And I'm like, yep, that's me. We got back to me. All right. <laughs> so they canceled all those, all those uh, you know, false charges uh, because the account had been stolen. Now, identity theft, the way it works is somebody gets your credentials, and then they pose as you so they can get things from your account. Salvation is basically divinely endorsed identity theft. That's the thing. You get everything that belongs to Christ. His righteousness, his inheritance, his mind, his Holy Spirit, his flawless criminal record. And therefore, you can never earn more the rest of your life. You simply draw from the blessings that are already made available to you in Christ Jesus. Now, what does this have to do with knowing and serving a holy God? Well, here's the thing. If you understand that, you don't then need to go looking elsewhere for secret, hidden knowledge. If you understand that, you don't need to go and try and find a source of greater spiritual power uh, or some form of additional blessing from a human. You don't need to wear yourself out trying to work your way to a greater amount of something because you already have it all in Christ. And what are some of these blessings that are listed? Well, it says here, you've been enriched in Him. And then it says, you've been given all speech and knowledge. So in other words, everything there is to know about God has been revealed in Christ. And this church in Corinth, they had been blessed by solid biblical teaching, and therefore they produced solid teachers and they produced reliable doctrine. Uh, This was a church where God was speaking, and this was a church where God's thoughts were getting out, and therefore they were enriched in their knowledge of God. Some people would eventually come to Corinth and start saying, well, we've got the next chapter. Uh, we've got a few more volumes of what you need. In fact, we've got a little bit more blessing and power that we could give to you. And uh, that, was, that was Paul's fear here. The truth is, a church without the Word of God will collapse. And sadly, many churches are not building their church on the Word of God. Um, a, a poll was done through the Pew Research Forum on Public Life, and they asked believers in Christ, true or false, Word of God, literally true, word for word, or not? Is the word of God literally true, word for word, or not? In evangelical churches, 59% of people agreed. That's it. The other 30% are perhaps still making up their mind which portions of Scripture are in, which are out, what it is. Mainline churches, even worse, 22% said, yeah, word of God, literally true, word for word. Um, Among the Catholic church of those surveyed, 23%, less than one out of four. Yeah, I could, I could get down with that. Yeah, I could. Well, what does that build into your church? Legos. 
Uh, and any church that's not building on the firm foundation of the Word of God is not being built strong. Um, the pastor who just spends his time up, up on the front sharing his own heartwarming, touching stories from life, just to give you a little dose of chicken soup for the soul, Legos, um, or, or the church that's really into political activism and we just need to fix this world politically and legally, Legos, uh, or even just giving you like tips on how to be happier and how to, you know, how to, you know, Legos, get this book open, let God speak, and then we will be a church blessed with all knowledge and wisdom from above, right? This, this is cinder blocks. Everything else is Legos, Lincoln Logs. Uh, one of our pillars here, I mean, there are several people in this room I know who are looking for a church to call home, and maybe you've got your list. What, what do we need to find in a church? Well, hopefully close to the top of your list is they need to preach the Word of God, right? And we're very blatant about our opinion on this. One of our pillars is proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. It's never going to change. It's never going to fall down, okay? In fact, the week that I get up here without my Bible, somebody throw one at me, all right? Make it a good shot. Just knock me down. And that way I'll remember, oh yeah, what am I doing up here without my Bible? It says here finally that uh, you have been enriched in him, this second point. You have all speech and knowledge so we can know God. And then when it comes to serving a holy God, it says so that you lack no spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts come up a lot in this book. A spiritual gift is something that the Holy Spirit enables you to do to build God's church. And the truth is that every Christian has a gift so that they can go to work uh, for Christ. I love that at our church we have 177 people uh, trained to do something. Something, whether hold the babies in the nursery or set up the stage or greet people coming in. 177 people, that's awesome. Uh, We understand that God has gifted us spiritually so that we can work for Christ in a number of different ministries. Um, And it says, so they lack no spiritual gift. So through Christ, not only are we made God's holy people, but through Christ we can know and serve a holy God. And Christ is the foundation of both of those realities. Well, there's a third reality here you can write down. Not only through Christ do we become God's holy people and know and serve a holy God, but jot this down. Through Christ, we will be guiltless in God's holy presence. Now focusing on the future tense of our salvation, look at verse 7. It says in verse 7, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Listen to this word and listen carefully. Guiltless. Underline it in your Bible. Underline it and circle it. Underline it and circle it and put a star next to it and draw a giant arrow to it. Because that's what God calls you if you're in Christ. Guiltless. And as you look forward to the future, as you think about the day when your life will be judged, as you fear where you stand with a holy God, God says guiltless. Maybe you doubt sometimes whether or not you truly are going to heaven. Are you really a believer? Uh, The enemy loves to mess you up on that one. Oh, after the day you had yesterday? Oh, you think you're a believer, huh? You really think God loves you? He left you a long time. You think he's going to let you into heaven? You're worthless. You're nothing. You're not his. He doesn't love you. On and on and on and on. You know what you do when that happens? You open your Bible to this verse and you point to that word and you believe it. 
guiltless. And it's not something that can change because it says we will be guiltless in God's holy presence. This is focused on the future. This is encompassing everything that happens in your life and in our world between now and when you stand before the throne of Christ to be evaluated. Guiltless can also be translated blameless. It's a legal term. It means there is no charge against you in God's courtroom. And yet, how can I be sure if I feel sinful? How can I be sure if, if I feel like I, I blow it? or If I feel guilty, if I feel tempted, how can I be sure? Well, it's not because of your behavior. This is a positional truth. It says here, God is faithful. He called you into the fellowship of His Son. He named your name. He called it out. Roy, you're mine. He said it. By name. Paul, come here. And when you are called by God into his fellowship, there's nothing you can do to lose it. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You called upon him as Savior and Lord. That's how you know whether or not you truly are a child of God. Okay, you're never saved in spite of yourself. Like, well, maybe it did happen and I just didn't realize it. No, 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 no. It's a head-on collision with you and a holy God. All right, the Bible says you died when you collided with the holy God and a brand new you was born again. You don't forget that. So it's not like it happened in spite of you. But it happened at the initiative of God. It happened under his authority, at his call, because of his voice. And therefore, you can't blow it. I like that. Guiltless until the day he returns because God is faithful. You are secure. I don't know about you. There's a lot of things in my life I'm worried about the outcome. Don't know how it's going to end. Okay? For example, for the first time ever, they talked me into getting into a fantasy football league this year. And I'm 0-3. 0-3. And these are people in our church who are beating up on me. I mean, they, what are their small group leaders doing? And so going into today, I'm like, how's it going to end? I don't know. Who do I play? I've got five guys who are listed as probable. And you know what fantasy football teaches you? NFL players are big sissies. They are. Oh, I've got to pull tendon in my toe. I don't know if it's going to be a game day decision. Don't know if I can make it happen. Uncertainty. There are a lot of things in life where you, I don't know how this, is one, this one's going to end. I mean, I don't know how my kids are going to turn out. I don't know if I'm going to get the job. I don't know how. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But you know what's amazing? You don't need to worry how your judgment day is going to turn out. You don't need to worry in the least. You don't need to lose even a moment's sleep about it. Because God says you're guiltless. He's already looking at that day. Guiltless on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord refers to the end. <clears throat> this world will have an awful end. NASA can do all they want to try and find all the meteors in the sky that could collide with Earth. Good luck. What are they going to do to stop it? Oh, we found a big one. Everybody jump at the same time and we'll redirect the earth so the asteroid will miss. And now, Joel 2, 30-32 says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But then, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We've got nothing to fear. We know how it ends. We don't have to worry about it. Guiltless on the day of the Lord. It says Christ will sustain you to the end. It means keep you strong. It means strengthen you. It means confirm you, make you firm, secure you. 
Your salvation is secure from now until when you appear in God's presence for judgment, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what happens around you, no matter what even happens to this world, your salvation is secure. And if Paul is saying this to the church of Corinth, he's about to open a can. I'm just telling you, he is going to let them have it next week. He's got some things that he's going to bring up, and you're like, that was going on in that church? What? And you're going to look back at this opening message, and you're like, how did he write this to these people? They're all messed up. And then you're like, well, I'm kind of messed up too. And, uh, and then you understand that, that God saved you. And you can't blow it. Your salvation is secure from now until the end when you appear in God's presence because through Christ, we will be guiltless in His holy presence. Ask yourself this. Do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you've been forgiven of all of your sins? I mean, if you weren't given a tomorrow and you appeared in God's presence at the pearly gates tonight, and, uh, and he said, well, well, why should I let you in? What is it that makes you worthy of heaven? Um, what would you say? The only acceptable answer is, uh, Christ Jesus is my Savior. I've been made holy. I'm blameless. That's the only acceptable answer. Not, I went to church a few times, not gave some money in the offering, not completed these eight steps, not read my Bible now and then, not anything else. It's Christ is the foundation that you're trusting for all of eternity. You have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have been made holy, and nothing can change that. This morning, we are going to observe the Lord's Supper, take communion, and what an appropriate day to do it. Because communion remembers that Jesus Christ died on the cross to fully take care of our sin problem. Our ushers are coming forward right now to get ready. And here's what I want you to do. As the plates are passed, there's going to be two cups, one inside the other. And you're going to take them and then you're going to wait. And you'll have some time to pray. I want you to take this as an opportunity to thank the Lord for what he did at the cross. As you're holding the cup with the juice that's red, it reminds you that his blood was shed to forgive all of your sins. As you hold the cup that has the bread, that's supposed to remind you that his body was broken as he paid the penalty for your sins. And I would just challenge anyone who has never asked Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, today is the day. You don't have a foundation yet. God's not doing anything in your life. The first thing he will ever do is to lay the foundation of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the first thing he wants to do. In fact, he's trying to tear your life down so you realize how to build a secure foundation for eternity. Today can be the day that you, for the first time, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And if you've already done that, perhaps long ago, hey, just thank God that he has made you guiltless. And as you hold these elements, be reminded how he did it. It cost him greatly. Take time to pray and wait, and then I'll come back up and we'll take of the elements together.